Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round that, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Percy Shelley's poem tells of a traveler in the desert who stumbles upon a great statue, or at least it once was. Now it's all broken down. The inscription reads that this was a great king, the king of kings, he calls himself. He left behind great works, or so he claims. Look at them, he says, and you will despair of ever being as great as I was. But, the traveler notes, all his mighty works have been erased by the sands of time. Nothing is left. Shakespeare's Macbeth put it this way. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Contrast that hopelessness with Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes called the faith chapter of the Bible. It reads, and I'm just taking selected verses, portions of the verses, verse 4, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built the ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They lived their life with a different perspective than Shelley's Ozymandias or Shakespeare's Macbeth. They had their eyes on the future. And that, of course, changed how they lived in the present. The writer to the Hebrews continues, they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God's people in the Old Testament moved around a lot. But when they'd say, we're not from here, they weren't thinking their real home was in Canaan or Mesopotamia. If that's what they were thinking, 
They could have gone back to those places. But they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. What awesome words. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? When God wants to introduce himself, he says, I'm Abraham's God. You know my friend Abraham, don't you? I'm Isaac's God. I am, and you can put your name here, I am Tom's God. He put his faith in my promises, and I have prepared a home for him. This second episode in our Time for Everything series focuses on time for perspective. And to help us consider that theme, we're going to be taking a look at Ruth chapter 1. We begin with a prayer. Lord, when your glory I shall see and taste your kingdom's pleasure, your blood, my royal robe, shall be my joy beyond all measure. When I appear before your throne, your righteousness shall be my crown. With these I need not hide me. And there in garments richly wrought, as your own bride I shall be brought to stand in joy beside you. Amen. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The book of Ruth opens with the main characters being plunged into tragedy and immense loss. There's a First of all, a famine in Judah. So Elimelech, a Jewish believer, moves to the land of Moab with his wife Naomi and their two sons. But tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow, a single mom in a foreign land. Certainly not an easy life. But they get by. The boys get married. At least she has them, and they can take care of her. But then, as if one tragedy is not enough, Naomi's two sons died as well. It's devastating to lose a child. Nomi lost two. And besides the deep emotional toll this must have taken on her, there was also a financial implication. She was now totally helpless. There was no social security. There was no life insurance policy. Nomi has to be overwhelmed with grief, loneliness, and a sense of hopelessness. What would she do? What was there to live for? How do you survive a loss like that? Well, you just keep going. You do what you have to do. You take your next breath. You put one foot in front of the other, and that's what Naomi does. She hears that the famine has ended in Judah. There's once again bread for the people to eat, and so she decides to go back home. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, 
she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, remember, they are Moabite women. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out in the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi's daughter-in-laws at first are going with her, but then she reasons with them. It's a rather cynical argument, but it is an airtight argument. A Moabite widow living in Judah, what prospects would she have? The one daughter-in-law listens to reason and turns back. But Ruth refuses. Naomi pleads with her to be reasonable, but Ruth says, verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth's example here is often held up as one of faithfulness, undying loyalty. It was my and Carol's wedding text, and whenever I hear it, I think of the commitment we have made to each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be, of all people, the most loyal to each other. But if we see Ruth's words to Naomi as simply the commitment of a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, we have missed their real significance. She doesn't just say, well, you go, I go. She says, your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. And she says, even death will not separate us. Why does she say that? Why doesn't she say, if this is how your God treats you, takes away your husband and your sons, I don't know, then I want that God. And don't forget, she's taken some hard shots too. Why does she say, not only will she not leave Naomi, but she will not leave the Lord? Why? Because she has come to know a God she can count on, a God she can trust, a God who will never leave her or forsake her, a God who gives her hope, A hope that is real, that unlike earthly hopes, which someday will just crumble into pieces, she has a certain hope that will find its fulfillment in a glorious, perfect home in heaven, 
far away from this broken and sorrowful world. And so, arm in arm, these two women make their way back to that little village in Bethlehem. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Sometime this week, finish reading the book of Ruth. It's only four short chapters, and it's a beautiful account of, of Ruth and how God keeps his promises to his people. Ruth falls in love with a distant relative of her late husband, and she marries him. They have a child, and the book ends with Naomi's grandson on her lap. But the point of all that is not just, well, hang in there when times are tough. Eventually, things will turn around. It'll get better. No, no. there is much more to this account of Ruth. That grandson in Naomi's lap, that was Obed, father of Jesse, father of David, ancestor of Jesus, who one day would be our Redeemer, who would come into our world and taste all the sadness and death, to pay the price to set us free, to give us a home in heaven. And now that loving God goes with us. Knowing that, knowing that our perfect home in heaven is waiting for us, and that Jesus has done everything necessary to secure that home for us, well, that puts all of life into the proper perspective. Once you understand that and focus on that, everything else falls into place. Martin Luther once famously said, there are just two days in my calendar, today and the day Jesus returns. Like those saints in the book of Hebrews, we walk by faith, not by sight. We live by God's promises. And in those promises, we find a hope that does not disappoint. A loving God, working for our good now, and a home waiting for us in heaven. I invite you to join us on Sunday morning as we delve more deeply into this topic of uh, a time for perspective. What, what perspective are we to live with in this life? Um, as always, if, if you uh, appreciate these podcasts, uh, I'd encourage you to share them with a friend. Finally, as, again, as, as usual, I want to give credit to the, the sources here. I uh, leaned some on the... Uh, the uh, stewardship materials produced by Congregational Services uh, entitled um, A Time for Everything. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. <laughs>